You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week, we hope. We have come to what, for my money, is the most exciting weekend in the NFL, the divisional round. It was a wild, wild card weekend, but not really. We'll talk about those games, but anyway, that that's one of the things that we'll get to. We did have another coach fired. Recap the uh, wild card round, as I mentioned, and also give some picks. Got a player interview. Also have a beat writer interview. Some Browns talk coming up here. So let's go to him right now. He's a Cleveland Browns beat reporter for brownzone.com, as well as writer for the Chronicle Telegram and Medina Gazette. Scott Petrak joining us on Pros Like Us. Scott, how's it going? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing all right. Uh, it's that time of year again. The annual What's Wrong with the Browns? Time. Well, I guess <laughs> that goes on for most of the year. So Andrew Barry, I don't know if it was yesterday or whatever, comes out in full support of his coaching staff but also his quarterback, Baker Mayfield, thinking he's going to have a bounce back year. Are you buying that? I mean, is there is there a potential for change here? Yeah, I'm not completely buying it. I understand why Andrew Barry would say it, and it makes sense, because Baker's under contract next year with a guarantee of nearly $19 million on the fifth year of his rookie contract. And I don't know if how easy it will be to find an upgrade. So I think Baker Mayfield as a starter in 2022 is the default, and it makes sense to pave the way for that, you know, kind of mend any fences and solve any issues that were created this year. But I certainly think, given how poorly Baker played this year, that Andrew Barry will and needs to explore upgrades in the offseason. So I don't think they're committed to Baker as a starter, but I think they want it to sound like that in case Baker is the best option. Scott, obviously you said Baker, you know, had a terrible season. He did, but he was hurt for most of the years. So why do you think the coaching staff didn't give him an extended time to rest and maybe play somebody like Keith Keenum, who has started in this league with Kevin Stefanski with the Vikings? I mean, he's a formidable backup. Yeah, that's a popular opinion around these parts, but I don't agree with it. First of all, Baker's your starter. So if he says he can play, if the doctors say he can play, if you watch him in practice and he can throw the ball, then he should be playing. I'm not arguing that the shoulder didn't affect him, right? The torn labrum in the left shoulder. I'm sure it affected him to some degree. But I also think he should have been able to overcome that better than he did. And, you know, you talk about, well, sit him down for a couple of weeks. Well, the shoulder's not going to heal, right? He needs surgery on the shoulder. He's scheduled for January 19th. I just don't know what impact that would have had. You know, he played in November 7th against the Bengals, and they scored 41 points, and he played well. The shoulder was the same. He was wearing the same harness, and he had a good game. So I I don't know if you can look at it like, well, when he played poorly, it's because he was hurt. When he played well, he overcame being hurt. That just doesn't make sense to me. And the season got deeper. He overcame some of the lower body injuries that had been bugging him. They had the bye week. He missed time with COVID, and he still wasn't the quarterback that he needed to be. So I don't think sitting him down for two weeks in October would have made any difference. So I was curious, one of your colleagues, Mary Kay, has covered the Browns for years and done an amazing job. And she had her story. And part of the story uh, centered around 
Baker Mayfield and, and, and so forth. There's a lot to it. You guys can listeners can go in and, and Google that story and, and read it. But Baker had an interesting uh, response, a tweet, as a matter of fact. And every time you think the kid kind of has turned a corner, just something gets under his skin and he lashes out. Now, his response was something like, you're putting words in my mouth to put food on your table. How did that play with your colleagues? <laughs> I would think most of us, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but most of us think that Baker was out of line. Mary Kay is not making anything up. She's writing what she's been told. I've heard a lot of similar things to what Mary Kay wrote in that article about tension with, you know, between Baker and Kevin Stefanski and issues with the offensive system. You know, I think there would be support for Mary Kay. And I think there'd be, you know, I don't love, I hate the term clickbait. I think that's a garbage term. And I know that that's not why Mary Kay wrote it. And I think Baker needs to be better at communicating with the media and just kind of handling himself in those spots. You know, if he wanted to complain to Mary Kay, he could have easily gotten her on the phone and complained. I'm not sure what good a um, tweet did, except, you know, riling up his fan base. Well, she's been there a lot longer than he has, and in my estimation, will be there a lot longer than he will or has put in time. Do you get fan response? I mean, do you, what kind of responses are you getting at your website or people that you've talked to, say, outside the building that aren't uh, reporters? Yeah, it's, it's divided, and it's divided like it is with Baker Mayfield in general. I don't know if it's 50 50. I don't know what the percentage breakdown is, but there's a lot of people that just support everything Baker does on and off the field, thinks that, you know, he rescued this franchise and he's the best quarterback the Browns have had since 99 and he can't do anything wrong. Everything this year was based on the shoulder. Then there's, you know, a segment of the fan base that thinks that Baker Mayfield played poorly and that he doesn't always handle himself well. So it's a pretty divided fan base in regards to Baker Mayfield. And I think this was just another example of that where some people Defended Baker and attacked Mary Kay, and then some people defended Mary Kay and thought Baker was in the wrong. We're going to put you on the spot here. Do you think the Browns can win a Super Bowl with Baker under center? To some degree, yeah. I don't think it's impossible, right? Nick Foles won a Super Bowl. I think Baker's a better quarterback than Nick Foles. You know, Trent Dilfer, and I know it was 20 years ago, but Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. Jared Goff was in the Super Bowl with the Rams within the last five years and had a chance to win the Super Bowl. So, I don't think you need great quarterback play to win a Super Bowl in certain off years. I think that's the easiest way to do it, and we see that with Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. Right? I mean, if you have a great quarterback, it gives you a chance to compete for a Super Bowl every year. If you ask me if Baker Mayfield's ever going to be a great quarterback, I would think the answer is no. But that doesn't mean that if he came back in 2022 and played like he did at the end of 2020 with the run game the Browns have and the defense that they showed this year, I wouldn't think that they have any chance to win a Super Bowl. Obviously, coming into the year, the expectations were at an all-time high. They were through the roof. This team went 11-5. and They beat the Steelers in the playoffs. Besides the quarterback position, what other issues do you think plagued this team this year? Receiver was an issue. You know, We talk about the passing game in general, and I think quarterback, obviously, is the first thing you look at with that. But it wasn't the only thing from a scheme perspective. Um, I don't think there were enough explosive plays or opportunities for explosive plays. And maybe that's because of your quarterback and maybe that's because of your receivers. You know, obviously there was the Odell Beckham Jr. departure at midseason. And while the Browns did not take advantage of his skill set while he was here and he had plenty of his own issues, 
they missed his presence on the field, and they didn't have anyone in that receiver room to duplicate what Odell can do. Plus, you had a Jarvis Landry that was banged up, missed four games earlier in the year with a knee sprain, and wasn't the same player when he came back. And then they didn't have a lot of quality depth at receiver. That's what I looked – you know, they didn't win close games. A lot of that's on the quarterback. Um, there were a couple of plays here and there that if they make, all of a sudden you're looking at 10-7 and seven instead of 8-9, and, and they're right in the playoff mix. So, you know, I, I don't think they need a huge roster turnover or huge coaching change, anything like that. I, I just think they didn't get a good enough quarterback play and they didn't win enough close games, which both things were better in 2020. You mentioned OBJ, and, uh, you know, nothing really changed once he left except what you outlined. They really didn't have enough talent at wide receiver. What do you think ultimately got them to move off of OBJ? I mean, there's so many things that, that led up to yeah. it, but what ultimately was the kind of the death knell? Yeah, I think it was, number one, his growing frustration. You know, it had been building for a while. And, oh, you know, Odell's a, a different individual, right? I think there are times when he was happy here. You know, and then I think there were plenty of times when he wasn't. And then that continued to grow, and they weren't winning as much as he thought they would win. You know, that Pittsburgh game, which was his last game here, he was targeted one time. I think he had one catch for six yards. That doesn't sit well with Odell, especially in a loss. And then his dad shared that video on social media and was openly critical of Baker Mayfield. Now, the Browns insisted that that wasn't the tipping point, but it certainly played a factor. And the timing of it and the fact that the trade deadline it just passed. All of that led to this is an unworkable situation. We need to move on from Odell. It just seems like maybe Stefanski might have had a little bit of an issue with him because how do you just, I mean, you're top guy, you're paying him all this money, and you're putting him on the field, and you only target him once. That just doesn't sound right. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And that was, you know, that was unusual. He was targeted the most on the team when he was here, but they could never figure out a way to use, to take advantage of, the talent that I think is still there. And I think we've seen it with the Rams. Now his numbers aren't dramatically different, dramatically better with the Rams, except the touchdowns. And if he had those touchdowns here, we'd be looking, we'd be having a different conversation about his time here. You know, the Browns did not figure out the right way to use him in the red zone. They did not figure out the right way to use him overall and get him the ball. And this is not to take all blame away from Odell, because I'm sure he ran wrong routes and I'm sure he wasn't always where he's supposed to be, but, if he's on your team and he's on your roster and he's your number one guy, I think Stefanski is a play caller and a game planner, and Baker Mayfield is your quarterback, needed to be better getting him the ball, and that just didn't happen. You see all these coaches getting fired this week. The narrative is always, well, you know, the new guy's got to go in. He's got to go in and change the culture. He's got to, you know, the culture has to be improved. It's got to be winning culture. I mean, culture, culture, culture. Stefanski has been there for a couple of years now. Obviously, the Browns culture has been at issue for many years, it seems like. How much has it changed since Stefanski and Barry have kind of taken over? I think it's significant change. I do. And, you know, I think I mentioned earlier that I don't think wholesale changes are needed. And that's part of the reason. I think there is stability in place. I think it's a smart front office and a smart coaching staff. You know, I think should give Browns fans optimism that they'll figure it out. I don't think they're very far away this year. So I do think the culture is in a much better place than it was five years ago when Hugh Jackson was here and then Freddie Kitchens. You know, I don't think there was trust in the coaching staff. I don't think there's trust within the organization. You know, I mean, it's not that far removed from 
general manager Ray Farmer texting the sideline saying, play Johnny Manziel, right? This organization that's in place right now, this regime is completely different from that. So I do think the organization has taken positive steps from a culture aspect. That's a pretty low bar to, oh, to leap yeah. over. But I hear what you're saying. They're much better off. What role has ownership, I think, played or, or the guys above the GM and the coach played in the dysfunction? Because it sounds like, like you said, Stefanski's a good play caller. He seems like a good guy. Barry's a pretty smart dude. They're doing well in the with the draft picks, yet they're still the cloud of dysfunction over the franchise. How, what role has ownership played in that? First of all, I'm not sure it's fair to say that there's still a cloud of dysfunction. Like, just because they went 8-9 this year, a lot of teams go 8-9 and don't make the playoffs. And there, I think there's a natural step back when a team ends a long playoff drop. I mean, the Ravens won 8-9 in this, right? There's a bunch of good organizations that won 8-9, and there's not a talk of dysfunction, right? But that's what's carried with the Browns because of the previous two decades. So I understand that, but I feel like they've gotten past most of that because of the new front office and the new coaching staff. But when it comes strictly to the ownership, I, I think that will always be a question because Jimmy Haslam, the third, and his wife, Dee, have been here for a lot of the issues, right? They were here for Freddie Kitchens and Hugh Jackson and Ray Farmer. So, you know, I, I think that is always a concern for fans is what kind of role is ownership playing? Are they meddling too much? You know, are they having an oversized voice in who the quarterback should be? I, I don't know if there's a good answer for that because those are your owners, right? I haven't noticed them being involved as much and i think that's a great thing if they leave it in the hands of paul de podesta and andrew barry kevin Stefanski. um but i think if you're a browns fan it's always a concern is hey are they going to stick their nose in too much scott who do you think is the number one priority for the browns this offseason who should they resign and try to keep no matter what yeah it, that's an interesting one it starts with Jadavian Clowney. you know he had a really good year nine sacks four sacks in his last two games and stayed healthy for the most part. He missed one game, kind of week five or week six. His knee just didn't feel right and warm us, but that was it. And then he missed a couple for COVID. But, you know, that's obviously not the same thing that's, you know, plagued him throughout his career. Um, I think there's a risk that, you know, do you know he's going to stay healthy again next season? I think that's a question, but I think he's going to get paid by somebody. The question is, will the Browns step up and pay him and give him the money he wants to return? And, I don't know if they will or not. And if they don't, then they got to find another defensive end because they don't have a second fiddle to Miles Garrett on the roster. So I think he's the biggest question mark. And I think they're going to chase him and try to sign him, but I don't think it's guaranteed. Talked a little bit about the coaching staff. Do you see any, like a shakeup or anything? Not, not, I mean, anything major, but any coaches that you might see moving along or any changes that need to be made there? I don't. Um, you know, their special teams were not good enough this year, but I feel like Mike Prefer is solid in his job. Um, I think he's proven he's a solid special teams coach. They need to get better in the return game. They need to make more explosive plays and change games, which they don't do. And I think part of that could be Kevin Stefanski's overall kind of conservative nature is, hey, don't hurt us on special teams. Don't hurt us on defense. You know, let's keep the game kind of close. And I think there might be room for change there. But I would not expect any dramatic changes. It will be interesting to watch, though. You know, we know what happened in Minnesota, right? They have a huge coaching change. That's where Kevin Stefanski came from. So he coached with a lot of those guys there, adds any of those guys, and makes a minor move like that. Outside of Clowney, any names that might be on the move? Yeah, Jarvis Landry is due $15 million next year. And it's the last 
last year's contract, the Browns can get out of it with only, I think it's a $1.5 hit on the cap. I don't think they're going to pay Jarvis Landry $15 million next year. I don't know if they can work out a restructure. I don't know if he still wants to be here. He did not talk to the media for the last month plus. Uh, he only talked to us once, and that was at a charity event after Odell left. So you have to question his contentment here. So I would expect Jarvis to not be here. Now, that's not a guarantee. It's just my feeling. Um, and then that's one other move that they need to make at receiver. Besides that, I don't, you know, Ronnie Harrison's the free agent. They'll probably let him go because they have a couple other safeties. You know, they'll probably sign Denzel Ward to a long-term extension at some point before next season. I think he's proven that, that he's a big-time number one corner. Uh, but Clowney, Jarvis Landry, David Njoku, the tight end, he wants to stay due to be a free agent. I think they'll work out a deal to keep him. But th- those are kind of the top free agent guys. You mentioned that Jarvis Landry might be cut. Uh, OBJ is gone. The wide receiver position was a troublesome spot for this team this year. They had a very good 2021 NFL draft. I know it's still a few months away, but do you think wide receiver is going to be targeted in the first round? Yeah, first or second round. Still getting to know this regime, right? It's only been two drafts for Andrew Barry. Part of me says they'd be reluctant to take a receiver in the first round. They might wait to the second round. But I do think it'll be early. I would not be shocked if they took a receiver early and then took another one in the middle rounds and then go supplement it with a veteran middle-tier receiver, especially if Jarvis Landry isn't here, right? Because then there'd be a hole. Only coming back would be Donovan Fields-Jones, who'd be in his third year, and Anthony Schwartz, who'd be in his second year. So you would have a need for a veteran guy in addition to upgrading the talent with some young guys. So I do think receiver would be top priority, only possibly replaced by defensive end if you don't keep Clowney because all of a sudden you have a pretty big hole at the number two spot because you won't have Clowney. Tech McKinley was on a one-year deal, and he tore his Achilles. So that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. So those would be the two biggest positions I think that they would target. We've covered a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, the front office, the players, coaches, so forth. Scott, are there any under-the-radar storylines that uh, you'll be following during the offseason? Yeah, I mean, there's a million things with this team, right? Uh, you know, what what do they do with Dearness Johnson? He's going to be an unrestricted creation. He's a running back who came out of nowhere, undrafted, got really fought hard to get in the league. Got a great story. Played a bunch this year because Nick Chubb missed some time and then Kareem Hunt missed a lot of time. Do they try to keep him as a third running back, which I don't know if he can afford to pay a third running back, what he would probably get somewhere else as a restricted free agent. Um, Could you move on from Kareem Hunt? He's such a dynamic playmaker, Kareem Hunt is, but maybe you think you can save some money with Dearness Johnson. Maybe you think Kareem Hunt's injuries, although he doesn't have any kind of injury history this year. He did um, a couple different things. I think that's something to keep an eye on. They need to get better. Judge Gould Jr. will be the left tackle next year. He needs to play better. He was a number 10 pick in 2020. Um, that was a crowded tackle draft, right, with Wirfs and Becton and Thomas were all high draft picks, and the Browns liked Wills. And I don't think he's lived up to that 10 pick. I know he hasn't. Through the first two years, he dealt with an ankle injury this year. I think he needs to get tougher. I think he needs to play through the whistle more. Um perhaps be more physical so I think next year will be a big year for him and that's kind of one of my takeaways from this season because they have the interior right the two guards at the Tony and Teller the center and Treader if Conklin comes back from the torn Patella right tackle you know Jedrick Wilson is the only guy keeping them from being a truly elite 
offensive line. Well, I believe that that offensive line is up there, and they hopefully they'll they'll make their way. So I appreciate you joining us, Scott. I guess uh, we're in for at least another year of At Home with Baker commercials. So uh, we got that <laughs> to look forward to. Jedrick Wills gets a little get a little shout out there too. But uh, if you want to go ahead and give your social media handles or anything you want to plug, go right ahead. Yeah, you can read everything I write at brownszone.com. And I'm on Twitter at Scott Petrick, S-C-O-T-T-P-E-T-R-A-K. All right, Scott, thanks for being a sport. Thanks for getting on with us, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Scott Petrack of brownzone.com. Just never a dull moment in Cleveland, and you just never know what you're going to get, so stay tuned. Black Monday came and went, and we, we kind of settled in. Okay, Brian Flores was the last guy, but no, Houston had to jump in, and David Culley, the guillotine falls on his neck. I mean, I don't know that they were going to get rid of him. They probably were, but it was almost seemed like, hey, Flores is available now. Casario's like buddy from New England. Hey, let's go ahead and make this move now. I mean, that, that's kind of the sense I got. What did you think? Probably, most likely, except that wasn't Flores pushing for Deshaun Watson with the Miami Dolphins? At least those are the rumors. Basically, the Texans came out and said that Deshaun Watson will not play another snap for us. So I don't know how that's going to work. But I do feel sorry for these coaches that kind of get hired out of nowhere. A guy that kind of waited. He was an assistant for so long. He finally gets his shot. And he's almost like, we hired you just because this team isn't very good. We're going to win two or three games. And we're willing to hire you, but we won't keep you. That was even the sense when he got hired, right? We knew that this team was bad. We knew that Deshaun Watson was probably not going to play. And therefore, it was going to be like a year, maybe two. So I feel sorry for you know these coaches that get thrown under the bus like that. Well, there's only 32 jobs, and we say it all the time. And it's hard when you've been waiting so long and somebody offers you the job to say, you know what, is this really the best place to go? Is this really, you know, at certain times you've got to say, hey, I may not get another shot like this. And depending on the language in his contract, i got to believe they still owe him that money or at least a good portion of it. If he wants to continue to coach, his reputation precedes him and it's impeccable. So I know the Chiefs would love to bring him back because there's probably going to be a little bit of a shakeup with their coaching staff if things go the way I think they are, especially the offensive coordinator, wink, wink. But no, you're right. I mean, he ends up winning four games. He's got a substandard roster. He's got to deal with this whole Deshaun Watson thing. Is he there? He's on the team, but he's not playing, and it's just this big mess. And hey, Davis Mills had some had some moments. Maybe they have something there. I don't know if he's has the potential to be a longtime starter in the league, but they at least have to kind of let him play it out and see if he can do it. I mean, coming out of high school, he was like a top five recruit going to Stanford. So, but as far as Cully's concerned, yeah, it sucks. You may see the same thing with Bisaccia. He does the dirty work, kind of gets him to the playoffs, and he's probably going to be gone too. But Flores, I think he's the guy that all of a sudden he came available and was like, hey, we're going to do this. Let's do it now, and, and, uh, and we'll move forward. But yeah, you know, Deshaun Watson, what the deal was in Miami, he said, she said, the owner wanted him. No, Flores wanted him. 
man. It's just this big mess. So the hell with him. Stephen Ross will get who he wants when he wants because he's just got all the money. And uh, yeah, the coaches pay the price. All right, let's talk about the wild card round. Obviously, the games, they weren't so interesting. But the one game that was interesting was the 49ers against the Cowboys. That was the closest game that we had that weekend. And San Francisco put a really good game plan together, a defensive game plan that slowed down Dak. Yeah, and he had, a, a, I mean, arguably his one of his worst games when the stage was biggest. Then you look at their record, and again, they were 6-0 and against the East, the worst, I don't even know if there is an arguably about it, the worst division in football. And against everybody else, they end up 6-6 six and six now that they lost to San Francisco. And again, I mean, it's 14 penalties. The fans are up in arms about the last play, and the referee did this, and it was all this big mess. Come on! 14 seconds left. You are praying when you make that call that everything goes perfectly. Dak gets down at the exact right time. That the umpire is right there to spot the ball. And and everybody gets lined up, you know, so you can spike it and have one last play. I understand what McCarthy is saying about, well, you'd rather have five verticals from the 25, whatever, instead of, you know, a couple of Hail Marys. Yeah, but there's no time. We'd all have, would love to do, you know, to be a little bit closer, but it was just Dallas who just did Dallas. And I think going into the game, the conventional wisdom was most people that follow the game, that watch the game and so forth, San Francisco was the favorite in this game. Even though Vegas had Dallas as a three-point favorite, you have to make Dallas the favorite at home. It's America's team. You have to give Dallas bias, if you would, all over the United States. You have to make them pay, you know, if you want to bet Dallas. Okay, so it's minus three. If that game would have been anywhere else, you know, San Francisco's might even be a touchdown favorite. But Jimmy G... (laughs) Again, what's he doing? I don't know. What When you saw him th- make that throw, what was going on in your mind when the ball's in the air? I thought it was going to be a pick. <laughs> I mean, what else am I thinking at that moment? I mean, it's one of those Jimmy moments, Lou. He's a, a decent quarterback, a good regular season quarterback. But when the big moment is shining on him, I don't think I can trust him. And I think that's the reason why in 2022, Trey Lance will be the starting quarterback and Jimmy G will be playing probably for the Texans. Order. Well, how about when they had awesome. a chance to cl- close out the game, right? I mean, it's fourth down in inches or less than a yard or whatever. And okay, we're going to kind of mess with the Dallas defense and we're going to shift Trent Williams from one side to the other. And he like taps the center before he can even put his hand down in the dirt to get set. So now that backs him up. So Dallas should have never, it should have never got to this point. That's the thing. San Francisco completely outplayed them, but there was drama at the end because of both quarterbacks, because, you know, Dallas is just Dallas. And I don't know. I mean, Jerry Jones and McCarthy, this is still kind of in motion here. This is a fluid situation because all of a sudden, Dan Quinn has put himself back in a head coaching area, in a in a field. You know, he's very much in demand. 
will Jerry look at this and say, hey, we're going to lose our defensive coordinator that they got our defense back to where we were respectable and actually very good. We've got Kellen Moore sitting here that's also interviewing for jobs. If I keep McCarthy, I may lose both of them, or do I lock up one of them as the new head coach? I would do it just because Mike Which Ma- one? I'll tell you which one. Mike McCarthy <laughs> Mike McCarthy has had game management problems ever going back to his Green Bay days and he hasn't solved them with the Dallas Cowboys the last 2 years and it it reared its ugly head. The Cowboys weren't prepared. I mean that offense has way too many stars and even if Zeke is whatever on his last legs, you still have like CD Lamb you still have Cedric Wilson. You have Dalton Schultz. You have Amari Cooper. Use them. Do something. You've got one of the top five quarterbacks in the league and Dak Prescott. I would go with Kellen Moore just because I don't want to make the same mistake and let Sean Payton get out of town and go to New Orleans like it was with Bill Parcells because Kellen Moore is an up-and-coming offensive coordinator. He has been able to work with Dak. They seem to have a good relationship, and they're putting up really good numbers offensively in the regular season. I think Dan Quinn is going to get a job, but I do think it's going to be elsewhere. So I would go with the young gun if I trust him, and I would get rid of Mike McCarthy because when those two coordinators leave and Mike McCarthy is left by himself, I think Dallas takes a huge step back. I don't think they make the playoffs next year. Well, you saw when he, you know, after he took his respite from coaching, and well, obviously he was fired from Green Bay, but, you know, he's off all this time, and he puts together this think tank, this incubator of coaches, and all that time off, and he brings Mike Nolan in to completely overhaul the defense, and it was a miserable failure and then Quinn comes in and in the space of a season now granted they didn't have Micah Parsons and Trevon Diggs became a revelation but who's to say that wasn't more based on what Quinn was doing with the given personnel that he had which obviously is what a good coach is going to do yeah left to his own devices who knows who he's going to hire for those two uh, very prominent positions yeah i think we need to stay tuned here as far as the rest of the games like you said i mean there were mostly blowouts i mean average margin of victory was 17 points per game every favorite covered except for dallas and like i said i think there was based on websites that track this stuff or whatever there was a lot more money bet on San Francisco than was on Dallas, which, you know, is a huge thing. You know, America's team, the whole thing. If you look at it, the better quarterback won all those games, except for, again, the San Francisco game. <laughs> but the Raiders I was most annoyed with because they were actually in position to win that game on a couple of different but their red zone was just so discombobulated and it seemed like they weren't really ready for it and even at the end of the game you just I just never got the sense even though they got down to the 10 that they were going to score a touchdown and it, that was the most frustrating game for me to sit there and watch that because I thought they had played well enough to at very least get the game in overtime and you know potentially you know if they would have done anything in the red zone they they could have won the damn game. I disagree because I think the Bengals could have put that game out of uh, reach in the first half and they were just settling for field goals. You know, like they were getting in there and they were settling for one field goal, for a second field goal, and then you got the feeling that 
the Bengals are letting the Raiders hang around. Like, this is going to be a game in the second half, and it was. And so I just felt like the Bengals, they need to do a better job in the next game against the number one seed in the Titans. We can start talking about this, low because they need to punch it in. Like, they need to get touchdowns. And I believe in the baby Bengals. I'm looking at that Titans team, and I realize that Derrick Henry is going to play most likely. But my God, I mean, the Bengals have way too many weapons. Like, I'm a believer in Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow knows exactly what the hell is going on from a defensive scheme perspective. He reads defenses for a young quarterback, even though he's throwing, what, like 14 picks in the regular season. I still feel that he knows exactly what's going on and how to take advantage of those situations. Jamar Chase on the outside, you know, T. Higgins, and then you've got Tyler Boyd working the slot. I'm going with the Bengals against the Titans. I think they're going to get this upset in Tennessee. The picks don't concern me that much with him, I guess, because they don't seem like panicked, right? He's not just putting it up for grabs. He's not, you know pulling a Kyler Murray or, or Carson Wentz or Matt Stafford with these these just kind of, well, YOLO throws from the end zone because I don't want to take a safety, and then all of a sudden it turns into a pick six. Burrow, he's well beyond his years, and I, that's what I was really interested in seeing in that game was his first playoff game, and he, nothing seems to really bother him, and he elevates the guys around him and he has such trust in those receivers that those I guess typical what we would call a 50-50 ball in his mind is like an 80-20 ball for his guy because his guy typically is better than whoever's covering you know at that time so yeah I'm I'm with you there I I like Cincinnati in that game Uh, they're getting three and a half points I'm going with the better quarterback. Last week, I was going with the uh, underdog, so to speak, because it was just a feel that wildcard weekend always is kind of muddled and crazy, and we're going to get a bunch of close games, and it was like the exact opposite, right? And then I look at it and say, hey, better quarterback is winning, and right now, he's the better quarterback for my money in that game for sure. So I'm with you on that one. Well, the other Saturday game is my 49ers against the Packers. How do you see this game? Are you going with the quarterback again? You know, this is the one that I'm struggling with because, I mean, obviously, I you know, I picked the Niners before the season. I love the way they play. For every reason that I picked them to go to the Super Bowl is what you're seeing on the field. Just the only thing that concerns me is at Green Bay against Aaron Rodgers – What's Jimmy going to do at the moment of truth? Because you know, I know Kyle can only protect him so much, but you know, there's going to be that moment, not necessarily where he has to make a throw, but that he does make the throw when maybe it, it's ill-advised or it's the, it's the timing's a little bit off and he just goes ahead and and makes the bonehead error. That's the only thing that's holding me back from San Francisco. I mean, it is a six-point spot. If I'm going to stick with my theory here of the better quarterback, obviously you got to go with the best of them and Aaron Rodgers. I'm going to go with the Packers as well. I just have to. They're at home, and plus our two best players on defense, if they're going to play, it looks like Fred Warner will play. He suffered an ankle injury against the Cowboys. It looks like he will play. What about Nick Bosa? 
I mean, he exited with a concussion. We don't know what that's going to do. I'm not sure that D'Amico Ryans, and he did a fantastic job against Dallas. I'm not sure that he can design a good enough game plan for the entire game without, like, say, Nick Bosa in there. Because, I mean, they're just going to have to blitz the hell out of, like, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, throw some confusing looks at him, but he's going to pick you apart. Dak wasn't able to do it. I have a feeling that Aaron Rodgers will. So that's that's why I'm going with Green Bay here. Yeah, it's just hard to go against. You know, they're sitting there at home, had the bye week. Yeah, rest versus rust. But those guys have been doing it together a long time. They've played in playoff games. Now Kyle seems to have their number. But I don't know. They're just a different feel this year. This one is very difficult. I mean, I really, really want to go with San Francisco just because I like the way they play. Debo Samuel, you can line them up anywhere. So... If they control that line of scrimmage, if they can run the ball successfully, I think they're going to be in the game till the end. But, you know, again, I have a theory for the weekend, better quarterback, so I'm not going to talk myself out of it. So Sunday, Rams at Bucks. Cards were completely overmatched in that game. That was one of my favorite picks of the of, of the weekend, but it was more so the cards coming in and would unravel versus the Rams have got it all together and then you know Cam Akers coming back huge great Brady finds a way they're only a three-point favorite they're sitting there at home they've got a game under their belt sure they had the injuries if Leonard Fournette comes back this becomes an even stronger play as far as I'm concerned I love the Rams talent I love what they did against the Cardinals but I don't think they can take that performance to Tampa and expect the same results. Brady's not going to make those mistakes. Those receivers, they're going to possess the ball. He was surgical in that game against Philadelphia, and I think he's just going to do the same thing. I'd love to see the Rams win, but I got to believe Tampa Bay here, minus three, no problem. I think it's going to be more difficult for Tampa Bay against the Rams, just because I think the Rams can get after Brady. And I think, you know, they've got some pieces defensively. They can confuse them a bit. I mean, they've got some great players. Aaron Donald, Von Miller, Jalen Ramsey. Stafford was brought in here for these big moments. And it wasn't about beating the Cardinals and getting that monkey off your shoulder, off your back, like he did against the Cardinals. But he's got to beat Brady. I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, Brady is going to go and it's going to be a rematch against the Green Bay Packers. In the NFC Conference Championship game, again, in the frozen tundra. So, yeah, I'm going with the Bucks here. What has to happen for the Rams to win the game? In your mind, what would have to happen on defense for them to win? They have to get pressure on Brady. That's it. And they have to get pressure with their four. Okay, this isn't about sending the, he's going to beat you if you send the blitz and try to confuse him. You got to drop back and you have to win at the line of scrimmage against Tampa Bay. I realize that Tampa has some issues up front because they've had some injuries. Tristan Warps is one of them. Like Tampa Bay isn't the healthiest up front. And I think that's the only way. Like Aaron Donald and Von Miller have to rise up and have their best game in the playoffs. If they do that, get Brady off his spot. Then he'll struggle, and I think the Rams will definitely have a shot. I still have to go with Green Bay and the Bucks. The offensive side of the ball, if they can run it 
consistently. If Cam Akers can put two games together, now great, the guys come off of a ruptured Achilles, which is this is one of the more incredible things you've seen. Guys have come back from this injury in shorter and shorter time, but nobody within the same season. Now, granted, his happened in training camp, but still, I mean, within just what six months or whatever it's been. This is unheard of. So I just find it hard to believe that coming off of that injury, you can come right back a few days later and go to work. You know, they've got the short week. They've got to travel east. You know, a lot going against them. But if they can put a run game together with he and Michelle possess the ball and not have Stafford have to throw it 40 times, he only threw it 17. Now, again, it was the Cardinals, but that's probably going to have to be the recipe. And then the last game, which I guess on paper – Star power, everything. This is the game you want to watch. You hope that both teams can play well. There's no injuries. And you got Mahomes. You've got Josh Allen. Wow. This is going to be a spectacle at Arrowhead Sunday night. And it's I, I can't wait for it. I'm scared to death, but I can't wait for the game. So I'll pick after you pick. How about that? I'm going to go with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, look, both quarterbacks played lights out. And the Bills have been really inconsistent, like throughout even the regular season. Like you see them score 30, 40 points, and then all of a sudden they lay an egg and they score six. So it's almost like so up and down. So I'm scared to make this pick because Josh Allen had like the game for the ages. Okay, and now he's going against the Chiefs. That defense has has been fantastic in the second half of the season. But I think Buffalo gets over the hump. At Arrowhead, it's going to be difficult as hell, but I do think that they will get that revenge from last year. The thing that scares me is the fact that finally they're working Devin Singletary in, and he's been very effective running the ball. And Allen, some more called runs, and he is a handful. You can ask your DBs to be good tacklers, but when you're giving up 40, 50 pounds, this is a big dude. That's the part that really scares me. As far as everything else, I think the Chiefs are going to be fine offensively. Now, again, this isn't going to be the 2018 or 19 Chiefs. There's going to be selected times when, when Mahomes goes for it. But the biggest revelation is Jarek McKinnon was healthy. And the speed at running back made a lot of difference. Now, say what you will about the Pittsburgh defense. Were they tired? Are they beat up? Whatever. They were still a significant defense in the NFL this year. But McKinnon, with that speed, now CEH is not that fast. Daryl Williams is not that fast. Derek Gore might be faster than the other two, but he's not as fast as McKinnon. McKinnon's never been a go-to guy because of his health. If he can put a game like that, those throws out to the flat to him are a hell of a lot different than throwing it out there to Daryl Williams. So now the defense is like, hey, he catches the ball. He's got 10, 15 yards before anybody even sees him, right? That's a huge, huge addition to that offense. So again, I can't pick against the Chiefs. I would abstain if you would let me, but no, I'm going to take the Chiefs. The line's only two. Uh, maybe two and a half. So that's kind of shows you where I guess the smart, I guess not the smart money or the sharp money is, is that everybody's feeling, hey, this is Buffalo's game. If Kansas City's only a two point favorite at home, this is definitely Buffalo being the favorite. So I'm still sticking with my guns. I still believe Mahomes is the better quarterback until Allen can kind of get over the hump, like you said. 
I'm going to stick with uh, the arrowheads. All right, so coming up, sleeper wide receiver. He's an All-American wide receiver for the Moorhead State Eagles in pride of Vallejo and also Richmond, California. Number one, Baliwa B.J. Bird, number one. B.J., how are you? Welcome to Pros Like Us. I'm doing good. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Hopefully I pronounced the name right. Mom will be uh, happy with both of us. <laughs> yeah, you did. All right. You were involved in the Tropical Bowl this weekend. You were there for all the workouts. You played in the game. What did you take away from the experience? What? How is this going to help you? Uh, I'll take away from this experience by saying you never know when it might be your last time on the field. So you have to make every rep count. You have to also just believe in yourself and just know you could do that and outwork everybody that's in front of you because you never know who's watching. All right, let's continue on that theme about the Tropical Bowl. Obviously, the competition was mostly FBS guys, D1 guys. Did you feel the pressure uh, going up against, you know, guys who are more seasoned, guys from the Big 12, the SEC, the the Pac-12? No, I, I wasn't pressured at all because I felt like during my season, I, I went against some of the best people as well, James Madison, Austin P, some bigger guys that wasn't in our division. So I was prepared for everything that was in front of me, and I was just waiting on the opportunity because as me coming from a small school, the question I always get is, can he play at the next level? Like, what is the comparison from my division to the, the bigger division? Can he compete with the, the bigger guys? So I was ready for anything that was in front of me. You also played at the FCS Bowl in the middle of December. That was in Daytona Beach, Florida. Same organizers who put together the Tropical Bowl. What was the main difference between the two events, the FCS Bowl and the Tropical? I would say the difference between the FCS and the Tropical Bowl was the FCS had more smaller school guys, like some D3, D2, some Division ones, so forth. As the Tropical Bowl, it was mainly all the big schools, all the FBS schools that you never seen or never went up against. So it was just really the difference was the name and the name of the school. And it was a lot more competition at the Tropical Bowl than the FCS. I would say I will compare it to the CGS because most of the faces from CGS went to the Tropical Bowl. So I had went up against some people that was already at the CGS that was now at the Tropical Bowl as well. Speaking of CGS, it's the College Gridiron Showcase, which took place in Texas before the Tropical Bowl. I heard a funny story where you had a mix-up with your jersey number at that event. Tell us about it. Whether it was a funny story or not a funny story, why don't you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, it was kind of both. It was a funny story, but not funny story. Because when I first got there, they gave me my belongings and stuff. And I opened it up. And I seen that I was number 14, but it took two days to soak in that I wasn't number supposed to be number 14 because I looked at the roster that all the scouts had. And when I looked by my name, it said number 80, BJ Bird. So it was like a coincidence of why maybe I probably wasn't, you know, talking to any scouts or things wasn't going the way that I planned it to go because when I first had my first practice, my agent didn't know what number I was, so 
she had asked the scout what number I was, and they had said 80, but I wasn't 80 because there was no 80 out there on the field. But I was 14, and she ended up finding me about that situation after practice, and I was like, oh, that's weird. But it didn't really click to me that something was wrong until the second day when I seen the sheet, and I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. Like, I don't know if this may hinder me or it might, you know, but I felt like I just had to keep pushing and work hard my last day. And I couldn't let this affect me and just keep balling out, even though they made the change the last day before the scrimmage. BJ, but when they see a guy wearing number 14, and I'm talking about the scouts, they see you, you're making some plays during the scrimmage, during the practices. Didn't you have some guys come up to you? after practices yeah speak with you yes yes i did i had talked with the seahawks as well it was during the middle of the practice because i had made a catch on the sideline and he was like what school did you go to because i'm pretty sure he's seen on the list that it was no number 14 so he's like who is this person and i had to tell him like okay yeah i went to moorhead state and my agent was right there to give him like my business card and stuff like that and my information so it kind of like worked hand in hand right there so what type of feedback did you receive from nfl teams and scouts at all of these three events uh, i would say the feedback that i received was they liked it the way i carried myself on and off the field they liked it, my background history of what led me to the position that i'm in now and they told me that I was strong and I had great uh, routes. I was a great route runner and I was very versatile, as they could see. And I made a lot of contested catches that they liked. And there was also a lot of background questions pertaining my life and my family. Well, we'd like to take you back as well on this show, uh, kind of origin stories and kind of like where it all started. In that vein, BJ, what made you fall in love with this game? It started off young. I was about six or seven, and I had an uncle which had a son that played football, and he wanted me to play football as well, but I never had played. And I started playing, and I just seen my potential that I had in what kind of player I could become. And it just, like, it stuck with me. I was always playing baseball, but football was right there too. And it just, like I said, it always stuck with me. And it made me the player that I am today because of my experience and how many years I had behind playing football. The love for the game, it's always been there since the first day I played. So did your cousin go on and play uh, a little bit more than just uh, just kind of starting out peewee? No, he ended up stopping after high school. Out of everybody that's been, that I played football with from junior peewees all the way up to high school, I'm probably the only one that stuck with it. Your college career started out in Jacksonville, Florida. How does a kid from California end up at Jacksonville? Well, coming out of high school, I didn't have no offers or nobody was talking to me. So I ended up going JUCO route, which I went to Laney College in Oakland, California. And I went there for two years. And the last year we ended up winning a national championship. And this was, our last game was December 13th. And here comes February, the semester had already started. 
and I'm still not talking to nobody. And then Jacksonville University ended up calling me saying, hey, we're FCS, Pioneer, Division One football. We're a non-scholarship team, school, but we would like to give you the opportunity to come play football for us. And I wasn't talking to nobody, so I took the opportunity because I wanted to play at the FCS level or Division One football level. Me paying for schooling didn't matter to me. I just wanted to be able to play, say I played at this level. Looking back down, I end up going to Jacksonville University for a semester, and it went well. And then they end up bringing us the bad news come November after our season said, hey, we're not going to be a program no more. We're discontinuing football. So I end up having to take this bad news and go elsewhere by breaking my year lease in my apartment. And I chose Moorhead because there was other teams in the PFL, but this was the most suitable for me. It was cheap as well, and it was the best decision that I could make. Okay, so yeah, you mean Moorhead was in your conference, in your league, so you knew them very well. How did things change for you? on the field and then also off the field. I mean, going from California to Florida to Kentucky, that could be, you know, some serious cultural things happening there. But first off, let's stick with on the field. How did things change for you? Uh, things changed in a, in a good way, I would say, going from Jacksonville to uh, Moorhead because, first off, Jacksonville was a triple option. I wasn't, you know, the primary target of getting the ball on the field uh, as far as when I went to Moorhead State, they were spread offense, so I ended up getting a lot of touches. I ended up with 90 receptions, 1,300 yards, 13 touchdowns. So as far as Jacksonville, I only had probably between 200 to 400 yards, only three touchdowns, and about 20 to 30 receptions. So it was a big difference. Like, I was the main target at Moorhead State compared to Jacksonville. I was probably the second or third target. And then from a cultural standpoint, I mean, now you're in Kentucky, you know, obviously still a long way from home. What have you taken from the experience of living, you know, the last couple of years in Kentucky? I would say I took that it doesn't matter where you stay or where you live you have one job one opportunity and you just got to make the best of it going from a very hot atmosphere to a very cold atmosphere I just had to get used to it because I never really played in the cold coming into the spring where it was snowing and I seen snow for my first time and it was about 12 13 degrees and I never been in nothing below 50 coming from California and then Jacksonville, where it's always hot. So it was very different. And then the culture change that I had to go through uh, at Jacksonville, was a, it was a lot more African-Americans than coming to Moorhead State, where it was different culture of people that I had to get used to. And it was easy for me to get used to because I'm an outgoing person. So I made friends and I bonded with people real easily. You know, when you started saying that phrase, you know, I started hearing that Eminem song from Eight Miles, you know. <laughs> there was a phrase that you used that I just started, like, hearing the beat in my head. 
what would you say is your biggest strength or trait as a receiver? Me being a receiver, I would say my biggest strength in is my versatility, being able to wide out and slot whenever. And I'm very strong, so that leads up to me getting off the press and beating the press when I'm getting pressed off the line. And I can also take the top off the ball if I need to go deep or run a pulse route. Like I said earlier, I have great routes. I'm fast, and I tend to get in and out of my breaks pretty quick and the change of my directions. All right. How fast are you, BJ? I'm about a 4.5 right now. But I would say probably low 4.5? Yeah, low 4.5. What would you say is the difference, like the main difference, between playing on the outside and in the slot? The slot... I would say mainly you're you're not getting pressed up as much, so you have the opportunity to have a free release. Like you could you tend to go inside or outside, and they just have to shadow you. And from, coming from a wideout, it's like okay, you have different coverages, so maybe they're pressing you majority of the time, or they're off a few yards, so you have to work a release and then stem to get back over the top. So. It just all depends on what coverage they're in and how somebody's playing and what's their techniques. And if they're giving you the inside or the outside and where you need to go, depending on the route. Who do you enjoy watching, like, in the NFL? And we'll put you on the spot here. As a slot receiver, like, which slot receiver in the NFL do you enjoy watching? I would say Julius Edelman when he was playing. I thought you were going to go with, like, Cooper Cup, Hunter Renfro, or something like that. Well, I mean, more <laughs> recent, I guess. I mean, guys are breaking oh, yeah. records right now. Yeah, true. I like them, too, but I compare myself to Julius Edelman mainly because he's a small slot wide receiver. He's fast, and he's also versatile like me. He could play the slot or the wideout, and they don't really look at as him as a threat, but he's a threat in certain situations as well. And that sounds like me all over again because I could play the slot or the wideout and I could be a threat from either position. So it's just a lot of comparisons between me and him. So it seems, BJ, that uh, like the best wide receivers that Alex just rattled off, a few of them, uh, technicians, right? I mean, not just, I mean, it's great to have the speed, but the ability to get open and they do all sorts of different drills. What's your favorite drill? I would say my favorite drill is cone drills or cone drills and ladder drills and working the sticks. But my most unique drill that I love is uh, working releases. Okay. And by doing that, what, I mean, if you could describe it, I know we, we could certainly put, but you know, put up a video, but we're not going to do that. But if you were to describe, you know, how you do your release drills, what, what would it look like? How would you describe it? Uh, depending on if they're playing press, I would say I have my, I'm on the right side. I have my left foot up since it's my inside foot. If I want to go outside, I would take a balance step. So that would bring my right foot up to be linear with my left foot. And then I will work a, a jab inside to get him to get off his, his perimeter to think I'm going inside and then. I will follow through with my right foot to go forward and blow by him for a fade ball or to get outside 
where I need to be. So did you play much basketball growing up? I mean, it's it sounds I mean, when you watch these guys like Devontae Adams, they talk about the the releases and so forth. There's a lot of basketball analogies, you know, the Allen Iverson, you know, the crossover and so forth thing and basically just shaking a guy. Did you play much basketball? Uh, Yeah, I did. Coming up, I probably started playing between seven and ten. Yeah, I played basketball. That was my alternate sport. Uh, I played it all all through middle school, all through high school, but it was something that I wasn't it was I was good at it, but wasn't like the dribbling type good. So working, you know, my hands, I was more of the defense and rebounding guy cuz I could jump, so I was always used as a big guy even though I was the smallest man on the court. Well, the footwork's always going to come in handy, so I'm sure you you did well with that. You've had many achievements and awards over your time playing there at Moorhead. All-American, the PFL Offensive Player of the Year. You were a finalist for the Walter Payton Award. Single-season school records for receptions, yards, and uh, touchdown receptions in the season. What are you most proud of I mean, in your time at Moorhead? I'm proud of all of my accolades man it's just been a journey and all i could do is just thank god for all the opportunities that he did give me and all the accolades that i'm receiving now to this day but the most outstanding one that i would say would be the walter camp the walter payton the pfl offense player of the year and the breaking the records one the Walter payton one it's only a select few that could get picked for that and it's only one one winner and just the opportunity that I had for getting picked was just amazing. Like I never knew that I would be, you know, in this situation or the Walter Camp Awards. Like I never knew what it was. And then I talked to my coach and my agent and they were like, this is something big. Like there may be a ceremony for this. Like it's only two people for your position and you're one of them. So like every position has a few names, so a select few, and like I never heard of it or anything. So that was very impressive for me to be able to achieve on that level as well. And then being able to get the PFL Offense Player of the Year, I thought I would have got it uh, in the spring, but I didn't end up getting it. They gave it to a running back at Valpo, and I was like, this is something that I want, and I feel like I got played out of it. So it made me want it even more and made me come in with a chip on my shoulder and then breaking the records. Of course, it was just amazing because now my name lives forever in the Moorhead school history. Well, let's continue with those records. You had a, a single game career record at the school, four touchdowns against Stetson. Man, I mean, four touchdowns, most people dream about that in one game. What was the difference for you on that day? Take us inside your record day. Uh, the difference, I would say, is because it was senior day. Man, it was my last game that I was going to ever play at Moorhead State Stadium. And the fans was out there, and it just was an honor to be there. Like, for them to take me in at such a short notice coming from Jacksonville, and only been there a year and a half in the first year, not being able to play football. They never knew what I could do. It was crazy. I just, just all I could do is just thank God that he was right there. The difference was this game, I was very emotional 
and like something just stuck out to me coming down the first drive I didn't get no touches and then we got into the red zone and Mark looked for me and I was open and it was the first touchdown my first catch I'm like oh yeah today is gonna be a good day like my first catch first touchdown and it just kept rolling and it ended up being a great day like I ended up having 224 yards I believe the defense they was trying to double team me the whole game it wasn't working I still was catching the balls on two people and just I was just having a field day out there man it's unbelievable so like you said it was senior day 12 to 24 and 4 which is you know a, a stat line for the ages I guess and it was record setting you mentioned the emotions the last touchdown came what inside of 30 seconds left to win the game but like you said the emotions were kind of taken over you during the course of the game what do you think you did to kind of get yourself right for the end part of the game to say, hey, I know it's my last game, but we got to finish this off. I would say that it was a close game overall, so it came down to the wire. And they were like our somewhat our rivalry because we needed that game to win. And Mark Pappas was going to me the whole game, so they were double-teaming me, like I said. And with my emotions running through me and stuff like that, everybody's cheering for me. I'm like, I might be the go-to guy like that Mark's going to look for because it's been times where we've been in this situation and he's looked for me. And being in the red zone right then and there, and they jumped off sides, and it was a free play. So, like, okay, let me beat my man that's in front of me because I know Mark is going to look for me. So, and that's what he did and caught the ball and all the excitement just came by me and everybody's cheering everybody's happy it was something like a disbelief like I couldn't believe that this was happening like I just caught the game winning touchdown and I already had three touchdowns I broke another record after the game was like hey you broke four records I'm like four records like what records did I break well, it was certainly a great day for you, and it could have come at a better time. And uh, congrats on all that. Uh, you mentioned your quarterback, Mark Pappas. What's he meant to you personally, and then your game? Mark Pappas meant a lot to me. Coming in to Moorhead, I had to make that connection with him. Being a new wide receiver, you just have to have that bond. And he was always there for me. Like we always spent time after practice putting in extra work throwing and catching with each other and, you know, just building that bond for us in the season. And it ended up paying off overall. So he meant a lot to me. Like, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be in the position that I am now, getting all my accolades and getting all the yards, 90 receptions. Like, I never had that many receptions ever. Like, some people in the FBS level or FCS level is not even getting that many receptions. It meant a lot for him to come to me that much that he had that much trust in me to go get the ball whenever or wherever it was on the field. All right, BJ. Appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, this is the time to show you get to plug your uh, social media handles, if you like, or anything else that you're involved in that you'd like to plug. Okay. My Instagram is LilBJ, Lil underscore BJ400. So L-I-L underscore B-E-E. J-A-Y 
the number four, H-U-N-N-I-N. And my Twitter is BJBird underscore. So B-J-B-Y-R-D underscore. All right. Very good, BJ. We wish you the best of luck the rest of the way in your preparation for the draft. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in an outfield uniform soon. Thank you. I appreciate this. BJ Bird, Moorhead State. Look for him. The kid seems like a little bit of a late bloomer. So if he gets his opportunity, hey, you heard him here first. Kind of made our picks. Last week, yeah, two and four. Uh, the only two winners were the Rams and San Francisco. And those were, I think, my two favorite games. The other ones, wow, just ugly. Alex, do you have a lock of the week? Yeah, I'm going to go with the Bengals straight up. I think they're going to win on the road against Tennessee. If I'm picking them, that that means they're going to lose. That's my lock of the week. The baby Bengals, I think they'll be in the AFC Championship game, whether it's going to be against the Bills or the Chiefs. I'm a believer. The baby Bengals. And either way, they would be on the road again. But uh, Joe Cool, you got to love this kid. Just ice water in his veins, makes all the plays. You just got to believe, you know, with with all this talk of Justin Herbert and the physical skills and everything else, it just seems like maybe Joe Burrow was really the, the guy all along. And that's why Cincinnati took him first. All right, gang. Like I said, I believe this is the most exciting weekend in the NFL, the divisional round. Let's get after it. Homer, go Chiefs. Please subscribe. For Alex, I'm Lou. On the way out, peace.